Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. So welcome to another episode of the Core Kinetic uh, Podcast. As usual, I've been highly infrequent and haven't stuck to any schedule uh, when arranging these podcasts. Um, I think it's podcast number 14, um, and we should be on like episode like 87 by now, but we're not, we're here. But to make up for that, for, for my less than fastidious nature, I have the wonderful Steph Allen to come and speak to me um, about uh, ACLs. And actually, I know next to nothing about ACLs. So it's fantastic that I'm going to get to spend some time with you, Steph, and you can uh, give me the benefit of your wisdom. Well, I feel like that's a little bit of a tall order for me to uh, be making up the difference here for you, but uh, I'll, do, I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, um, what I love um, about you, Steph, as well, is I know that you've set up your, your ACL project uh, recently, and I, I really uh, love to see people who go out and take uh, the bull by the horns and, and get out there and, you know, not talk about it, actually do it. Um, I, I just mostly talk about things, but then I've kind of made a career of that. Um, but why don't you just let everyone know just a, a little bit uh, about you, Steph, and a little bit about what you're kind of getting up to at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit about me first. Um, I am, for those of you who know uh, U.S., um, and I'm sure you have a lot of U.S. listeners as well. I'm from New Jersey, so I ask people not to judge me. Um, because New Jersey gets a bad rap for a lot of things. Um, but I, I ended up doing travel PT and a residency after I graduated. And I sort of found, and we'll probably get to this a little bit later too, um, some frustrations in some of the systems, particularly with ACL injuries. So I think that's where the spark sort of started for me as far as asking more questions and wondering how we could be doing better. Um, and then it just sort of, you know, you talk about a rabbit hole, it just became mostly my life. So, which is, which is fine. We're doing things with it. Um, I landed after that in Boston where I am now I'm working, still working part-time at Boston PT and wellness. Um, Zach and I are both there and we dropped hours a bit to work on some things outside the clinic, but more recently have taken the leap, um, like you alluded to. And I started my own virtual coaching specifically for individuals who, um, have had an ACL injury. I do have a couple people who are just, knee injury related and looking for some guidance. Um, but it really was born out of frustration with not being able to give the amount that I want to be able to for these individuals in clinic. And 
don't get me wrong. There's definitely plenty of people who are appropriate for that. But what I think of mostly are the high school and college kids that I work with um, primarily. And they are really tough because they're doing so much and they have a lot going on. It's tough to make sure that they're doing things between sessions. And if we're dealing with insurance, that's a whole other issue. So what I end up running into a lot and what I think I ran into a wall with and decided to just take a chance and and create something that I could do more and give more, more often was that if I were to be honest with myself and with them about them getting to where they need to be with just seeing me twice a week and not doing anything in between, you know, that's, it's not going to work very well. So all really to say, then I started, um, I came up with ACL resolve as my, my coaching business and opened that up. So I have, um, virtual clients as well as still seeing people in the clinic twice a week. And I really like that balance because I, I don't, it's not something where I'm like, F the clinic. I'm never, you know, I'm not, I, I see you, other people. You also. can swear if, if you want to. I, I might at some point. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fine. I, I do. So you can. <laughs> um, but I do, you know, I, I see people who I don't only see individuals who have had an ACL injury. I see other people in the clinic and I really like that. So um, that's where I'm at right now. Um, I have a really sort of diverse um, roster of clients that it's, it's been really fun. And I have to say that it's, it is what I feel like was missing for me. Excellent. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's nice to hear that you've made a jump and that's worked. And, you know, I, I, I do think that, you know, we, people make a lot of this kind of burnout and, you know, that relentless grind of, of, of pe- seeing people hour after hour, day after day. And I think when you can find a system that works for you, uh, you know, in terms of interest, financially, it excites you, you have a something that you, you know, it's yours and you can do something with it. You know, I think that brings a lot of uh, enjoyment and pleasure and, you know, something different to our working life. Yeah. All right. So look, let, let, let's jump in. So I, I, you know, I, I do know a little bit about ACLs. Um, you know, I personally also have, uh, have worked a lot in kind of sports rehab and these type of things over the years. Certainly, um, things seem to have changed in, in the world of ACL. So from my perspective, you know, it was, uh, you had lots of people like Chris Powers, work and, and that kind of stuff around 2010 and, and these kind of things. And people started to talk about the brain and, uh, and these type of things. Uh, and maybe we can explore some of those other things in, in a little while. Um, but what do you think really, uh, really draws you towards these little ligaments in the knee. <laughs> it is just a little ligament, right? <laughs> it is a little ligament, but it doesn't have cause a lot of problems. <laughs> big implications. Yes. Little ligament, big implications. Yes. That sounds like um, a t-shirt. <laughs> it'd be a tagline. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I, I had the injury in high school, obviously had zero understanding of said impacts or anything surrounding it. But obviously always, once I was in PT school, had a, a bit of an interest for it. And more so as I went along through travel PT in particular, and I was in different systems, a lot of times hospital-based outpatient 
um, and saw a lot of how I felt as though it wouldn't take much more effort to be doing a little bit better. <laughs> and I, I didn't know a ton at the time. So I also didn't want to say like, okay, I feel like we could be doing better. Let's do this. I didn't, I didn't at the time have, you know, an alternative. So that's how I sort of dove into it. But I think if I look back now and I feel like what I love so much about it, not that I love that people get the injury, but I enjoy going through this process with people. Yeah. Um, because it's one of the few that I've worked with that you really, in almost all cases, unless you're only going back to like walking and biking, maybe, um, where you have to not just get your surgery leg equal to the other side, you have to get both sides stronger than you were before. And you also have to be like a stronger person mentally because this rehab is, uh, it kind of sucks <laughs> at certain points. It's, it's very rewarding long-term if you ask me, but it's going to test you in a lot of ways. And there are, um, certain points I think along the way where people might lose the necessary motivation and they might not necessarily reach their quote unquote full potential. I think that has an implication in either the retail rates or the rates of the pretty low rates of people actually getting back to the same level that they were before I was in that demographic. So, um, I think that part is intriguing to me because it's really hard, but it actually, if you let it transforms you as a person. And that's just something really cool that I like being a part of with people. Um, and there might also be a little bit of uh, living vicariously through some of my athletes because uh, I chose not to go back to sport, yeah, and I yeah. I regret not trying to do that. I just didn't know at the time. But I think what's wonderful about that, and, and I think often this is why people can go into say being a PT or a physio after sports and sports careers or careers that are ended by injury or never quite um, manifested themselves you know, is that desire to still be engaged, to still be involved. And what I think is actually fascinating there is that that provides an element of passion, doesn't it, to some degree? You know, that, that, that you, you know, there's still this, this engagement and this desire and, and this living vicariously through others, which I actually think is a real, is a, is a real positive, you know. And one thing that really comes to, to, to mind here is this idea of, maybe it isn't even, you know, PT per se. It's a kind of a hybrid PT coaching type of scenario, isn't it? And, and maybe that's exactly what you need over those type of timeframes. And I heard you use a word there, which I think is fascinating in this area, which is motivation. Um, how much do you think that comes into play in working with, with people over these longer terms? It's it's huge. And I think motivation takes different forms because it's not just a, it's not just motivation in the sense of to do their exercises or to go to PT or to, you know, work on their cardio once they can run and bike more. It's, you know, that's almost like base level. Yeah. I think mo like they, people really realize that there's like a deeper motivation here that actually requires you to like, maybe question yourself and maybe, you know, it's, it's motivation to really get through some times where 
you know, you're, you're working, you have to find something to work towards while oftentimes these people don't really know exactly who they are at the moment because all they've done is their sport. And this isn't everyone, but it's usually something, even if it's not an elite level sport, I have some, a couple of individuals in the clinic that I'm working with right now that are super active in their forties. Um, but even day-to-day stuff and being a parent, they, you know, they have worries and they can't do that to the best of their ability. So there's maybe for lack of better words, there's some identity shifting going on. So to really actually be able to, to grasp hold of and kind of maintain motivation through all of that is, is really hard. And I can't always, you know, it's, it's not something where you can like instill motivation in someone you need to like be there. That's I think more of the cultural of like, be there, be supportive, ask them questions about stuff that they might not want to talk about. (laughs) You know what I mean? And like, ask them how they're doing things where, you know, if you're only focusing on the knee and only focusing on exercise, that's one piece. But I think there's that whole other layer of, of motivation that honestly, it's really hard for, for some people and some people don't keep it. Yeah. And so, you know, I think we, one of the, the, the areas I think that I see lots of kind of ACL rehab, you know, is with sportsmen and you know, they're professionals or they're at a club and they get assigned a physio or a PT, someone who guides them through their rehab, you know, and, and they go through those dark moments and they go through the testing and all these other things. And is that sometimes missing for people who aren't involved in elite level sport, that they don't get assigned, you know, like a, someone who can work for them or work with them? And, 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 and maybe that is a, a really missing part that, 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 you know, we and you can, can plug into maybe. Yeah, I, I think that's actually, I think you touched on a piece that is sometimes hard to do in clinic. And it doesn't mean that it can't be done. And I, you know, I've, I do it and I have done it for a long time. There are some limitations with how much support outside of the clinic you can give just because of time, Mm. you know, there, there, we have 30 minute follow-up sessions. Um, you know, people are there for a little bit longer, but my one-on-one time with them is limited to that once or twice a week. And if I count all the people that I have in clinic who are going through ACL rehab, um, and my own clients, I can't, email all of them in between their sessions and like, see how they're doing. And cause honestly, I, I believe like that's what people need. Yeah. hundred percent. And that's where, you know, I, I know burnout has such a weird connotation now. And I don't even necessarily know if I, if I would want to call it that I just, I, as I alluded to for something, something for me just felt, felt like something was missing, but also it is this sort of like, I didn't feel like I had anything left to give. Right. And I was going above and beyond for people and, you know, I would feel good about it, but then I have an hour of notes and like trying to have a life outside of, so I, I, I am very life. You want a life, Steph. What, what's, what is that all about? How dare you? To be honest, I'm a little bit embarrassed at like what my life is outside. <laughs> anyway. um, but even that we won't go there. Don't worry. Yeah, no, that's another day. Um, but yeah, so for me, it was it. You know, I I know how fortunate I am to have 
struck this balance, if you will, if that exists. Um, and that who I work for is super supportive of, of said changes. And therefore the people that I work with are, are benefiting from it. Um, but I do think that as much as I love working with this injury, I do think it's a unique one as how it fits or maybe doesn't fit into an insurance model, um, for most of the type of people that have this injury. Yeah, no, no, I can really see that. I think it's a lot like, you know, in some ways, chronic pain, persisting pain doesn't always yep. fit the model yep. of coming in, get treated 12 times over six weeks, off you go, you know, yep. uh, if you don't get better in that time frame, then... Then you've failed. Yeah, yeah that, or, 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 you know, or, or it, you didn't fit the model, you know, and, and that probably ties in with that idea of failure. And, you know, often we all will say, oh, well, you know, they, they didn't get better, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I, I actually see the more you kind of talk the, in the back of my brain, which is where I've got a big hole where I'm meant to have <laughs> a brain, but um, it, it's kind of like it, it does feel to me it, in a way a lot like people who have longer term persisting pain, that often it's about having a coach, a guide, someone who can help me along that journey. And that doesn't fit a lot into maybe the traditional systems that we've got. And well, I think we're seeing that, you know, with, with pain now that people are, you know, taking these roles of pain coaches, which mm-hmm. is more of a coaching type of situation. And you, yeah. you, you're you taking more of an ACL coach kind of road, if you don't mind me saying that. Um, and I love this because, you know, this, this really gets at the heart of painful problems, whether they're like a sports related one, such as ACL, or more of a, you know, chronic persisting pain type of thing they both need someone to deal with the person and not just the problem and so it fascinates me the two ends of the spectrum yeah no and I think and it's funny you say that because I have spoken to my coworkers and Zach about that exact thing recently as far as a chronic or persistent pain type case there and how they do or don't necessarily fit into at least how insurance-based allocation in our country is structured. Because when you think about it in both of those things, long-term rehab, like a post-op, not even necessarily just ACL, it just seems to be that it has such a big implication in sport and life for people that it, it that's a unique one. But in those longer-term processes, as I alluded to before, like you're trying to become almost a different person and stronger than you were before that's like a journey and that's like a process. And that's something that actually outside of the, like a lot of that has to happen through you. It's lifestyle change essentially. And that's what I feel like, you know, we've talked to our coworker, Mike Amato about this a lot too, is like, especially in persistent pain, when you're trying to work with someone and figure out, you know, how can I have them understand that maybe no pain isn't necessarily the goal and that there's a lot of other things that they can be doing. And, you know, like how you really like to play with movement is something that I respect with people. And and we use like movement snacks and stuff all the time. Um, I, so I, I take it you're uh, saving up my royalties. There's like a jar. I'm, I'm stealing put, from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You put a dollar in every time, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll collect payment next time. Yeah, yeah. We'll keep a tab. We'll keep yeah, a tab. perfect. Um, but all to say that you know, that, I do think that fits so much more into a, a coach is one way to think about it. Like a guide, something that, you know, somebody that you trust and you feel comfortable with 
walking through this process with, instead of just like, oh, I have to go to this session a couple of times a week and I have to get my quad stronger, or I have to, I'm going to go in and, and try to do some exercises without some pain. And then we're going to talk about how my pain isn't in my brain. And like, then I'm going to leave and feel better. You know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. neither of those two things, um, fit that, but also I think they have a lot of in common in that sense. Yeah, I think underlying principles. I suppose you could say ACLs are a chronic pain problem in the definition of what well, what is chronic pain though? It's just it's just a problem that kind of lasts more than three months, which you know is a right. ACLs fit that really, really yeah. well. I suppose I that have, we I have worked with people who ended up with like chronic patellar tendon area type pain and it even beyond, you know, years out, they're just very fixated on this. Like I can't do certain, like it 100% transitioned, I think into more of a traditional chronic pain case versus just a, while I'm trying to run again, the front of my knee hurts a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I suppose if we think about basic physiology, that would make complete sense for a, you know, a, 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 a section of the population that do suffer from ACL injuries. So look, we've kind of touched on it a, a little bit. Um, maybe we can be a little uh, more kind of, we can make some, some, some stronger points in the next section. What do you think is often missing uh, for most people when they get ACL rehabilitation? Cause I, I you know, I, I, I hear various people say you need to do this and you need to do that. And so I'm interested in, 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 in what you think in this area. Yeah. Well, and that sometimes I think can make it a little bit overwhelming for not just the clients, but also the clinicians. Like, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Like that's a hundred yeah, really point in and of itself. 100%, yeah. In there. Um, so I was thinking about this recently and I think I would probably place three. Cause I, again, in effort to not be another person saying you should do this, they should do that. Uh, I want to try and I want to try and keep it super simple because I do think that over the last couple of years in, in particular, the simpler, but very like objective and, um, you know, organized approach I've taken and in how I both do things and explain things to the patient has actually been, you know, ha has yielded better results. Um, so I think one of the, the first things early on, actually, and this is a trap that I sort of fell into a little bit is it seems silly, but range of motion. So, and I'll explain that a little bit. Everybody focuses a lot on getting back that full extension. And I 100% agree, but I think sometimes what happens with people, especially if they have also had a meniscus or an MCL, either injury or repair, sometimes they don't repair those, mm -hmm. um, Flexion's tough for people sometimes. And it often takes more than that first, like, you know, ideally we are trying to get full extension within four to six weeks. Yeah. Um, a lot of times the flexion takes a good amount longer than that. Huh? Okay. What I think happens in those cases and not everybody, um, yeah. but what happens and something I'm definitely guilty of is waiting to get, you know, continuing to work on that flexion, um, bleeds into the area of time where we would start to ramp up strength because other things are feeling good, but they just have like a persistent sort of block or they're going really, really slow with flexion or, or it hurts to push it. Um, and I have been guilty of definitely sort of like initiating 
the the heavier strength stuff without necessarily making sure that we were still prioritizing the flexion because other things were feeling good and they had extension. Um, and then I would, that would creep back later when we're talking about running and sprinting because for end range strengths, um, meaning like, for example, to do a hamstring curl full range, like heel towards, butt. yeah. um, if they don't have that and they haven't worked on that the whole time, but you need strength through the full range for something like sprinting, you're going to run into issues potentially. That's just one example. Um, but I think that's something that I have definitely missed in the past and that I now very much so am, am humble enough and also, you know, transparent enough with the patient that like, Hey, I definitely want to start doing said things and we can still increase weight with things like knee extensions and other things like that. I'm probably, I want to make sure we get a little bit, a little bit more of that range for things like, you know, the compound lifts like squats and deadlifts. So, I mean, you can still work on these things together, right? So, so I think, you know, I, I remember the old fitness pyramid. Do you remember the fitness pyramid where it has I do. mobility on the bottom, flexibility, yep. strength, power. Yeah. And I think we Definitely sometimes, overlap. yeah, we get in locked in this idea that before you do X, you need to do well, like strength training before plyometrics. Right. You know, we have all of these kind of fitness yeah. facts that float around in our head you know that you need to do this before you do this and if you think about it well you know you could say well you've got your extensions back we know that the biggest reason i think the biggest reason for revision surgery is a lack of full extension that's one of the things that i remember from from acl literature um very good yeah i did did i pass have i got some kind of star or prize it's like my one yeah excellent excellent so it's kind of like this idea that, you know, I need to do X before I need to do Y, uh, you know, and actually you lack a bit of flexion. We'll keep working on a little bit of flexion and we'll move forward and do some other stuff as well. It's like sometimes yeah, I think we have these rules, don't we, that, that manifest themselves. Yes. And that's where, so I think there's two ends of the spectrum there. I was, or the, the mistake that I made was to just continue and not necessarily uh, continue the strengthening and not necessarily keep that same high priority of flexion with how I was telling them to do stuff at home and or what we were prioritizing as far as, um, warm up stuff and everything in the clinic. There's also the other end of the spectrum, like you were saying, where we won't do any squatting or anything like that until you get full flexion. Obviously that's not the case. My, my point was more so that, you know, to continue, like, don't be afraid to continue to be doing like range yeah. of motion stuff at like month four, if they need to, yeah. you know, like that's, and that's something that I feel it was just a weird, like you said, it's almost like an unwritten rule. Yes. Yeah. Well, I should be, I should be doing this now. Um, that's not a priority more like, well, it is until it isn't. <laughs> well, yeah, I, absolutely. It's, you know, quite, it's not all that, you know, we talk about kind of, time base when it comes to ACLs, which is cool. Um, you know, making sure that we let biology do its bit. You know, I think sometimes that's what we forget. There is a there is a real biological element to it there. But at the same point, you know, it's like we say first four weeks is X, second four, you, as you say, four to six weeks, make sure you have full extension. Then you move on. And actually, as you said there, it's probably relevant until it's not relevant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Protocols in general are, and again, I spent the first 
three or probably, yeah, probably like three or four years of really working a lot with this injury, trying to figure out like what the best protocol is. And I'm, I'm realizing that I don't, there are definitely like general time-based milestones that you want to make sure. I almost equate it to like when you have a child, right. And like there's certain developmental milestones that these kids are supposed to hit. And you're like, crap, my kid's not talking at a year old. Like what's wrong. Yeah. My, my, my son was 17 before he spoke. (laughs) Well, then it's funny (laughs) and they stop talking again altogether. Yeah. But it is to, to a degree, it's, I, that analogy works in my mind. I don't know if it's yeah. completely out of left field for some people, but you know, there's certain things where if again, like they don't have full flexion by, you know, eight weeks or something, I'm not necessarily freaking out. I'm prioritizing it. There's some yeah. urgency there for sure, but I'm, I'm not necessarily freaking out. And we are just really, we're hammering away at that sort of thing. Whereas younger me earlier clinician would have been like, Oh my God, what did I do wrong? Like what's, you know, do we have to go get another MRI? Um, you know, which in rare cases that is the case, but, um, yeah, that's, that's definitely something, uh, I have simplified there as well. And I don't actually know if there's a, a perfect protocol that I would either suggest or be able to follow because it is pretty different for everybody. Yeah. And that, that is actually, isn't it? The value of becoming more experienced, whatever that means. I think sometimes is that you start to realize that one thing doesn't fit everyone. And also, you know, that, that some, you don't need to freak out all the time, that kind of normal distribution of what people do and how they're meant to behave. That bell curve is a lot wider than we kind of give it credit for. Yeah, I can I can assure all of the young clinicians out there that I have done enough of the freaking out for all of you. So <laughs> there you go. Everyone is covered. <laughs> so we kind of looked at there some of some of those criteria. What else have we got in there that that you think might be missing? Yeah, I think um, it, again, this would probably be a whole separate podcast, and I alluded to it a little bit before, but the it's fancy word, but like psychological impact and more, I, I, I like to keep things simple in that really just making sure that we are keeping in check with the athletes and the individual, you know, how are you feeling about all this? You doing okay? Like I, in the very beginning, I have people fill out the ACL RSI, yeah. um, the, the, it's the reason I like it is because it's short. So most people get ticked off and they'll actually answer <laughs> yeah. They'll actually they'll actually answer it, um, pretty honestly, because it doesn't take too much of their time. Um, but I less, I, I actually, and I shouldn't say this complete, like I do look at the whole number score, but I actually care more about which of the questions that they answer low. Okay. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, there's a couple of questions on there that ask things like they start with how fearful are you how frustrated are you by, mm. um, how confident are you? And those are things where like, let's say for instance, um, they score really low on the confidence one. They, they have like a zero, it's like zero to a hundred for each one. Um, that person early on, I'm probably going to make sure that whatever I give them in rehab is something that is 
appropriately challenging, but that I know that they can complete and do well with and like celebrate little wins, at least in the beginning. Um, because they're already super not confident and not having a good time. <laughs> There's also the, the anomalies of people who like, are like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I'm going to be totally fine. Like, this is, you know, I don't know how truthful those answers are either, but, um, that's one thing that doesn't take a lot of time that I think is, is missing from, from some people's journeys. Um, and I think also, you know, I don't think anybody is ill-intended. I think sometimes clinicians just don't feel equipped to maybe feel like they can handle that side of things. But one thing I would say to that is, we're not psychologists for sure, but if you know how to actually just have a conversation with people and literally express, even if they don't even really reciprocate back, sometimes again, we're talking about high school kids who don't say much. So sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm hitting my head against the wall occasionally, but keep doing it because, and even if it's just like, Hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling about things? Like, you know, nonchalantly in conversation, they pick up on it and they know that you care. And literally just them knowing that you're there, um, you know, feel free to shoot me a text or an email over the weekend. If you have questions, like little, little things like that. I think that those things go a long way and they don't take anything, you know, we don't need a a specialty there to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you, you know, we're, we're definitely singing off the same hymn sheet when it comes to this, you know, I think that people are often looking for, amazing tips or tricks or things that they think is going to elevate, you know, their communication to this perfect, you know, I never say anything wrong and everything I say is motivational, Um, you know. But I do believe that if you go and watch someone coach five-year-olds playing football, if, you know, or soccer, sorry, not that weird game that you guys play. (laughs) You know, the one with the funny ball. Um, anyway. And we'll everybody who plays football tears their ACL apparently here. So anyway. Yeah. That, I, I call it hand egg rather than football because I think it looks, <laughs> I think it suits that, you know, if we're being literal, I think that fits better. I'm um, never going to see anything different now. No, it's hand egg. It's not football, <laughs> is it? But anyway, we'll move on from All that. All right, go ahead. But if you watch anyone who's really good at coaching kids, and most of them aren't going to be psychologists, and they're not going to be, they are people who are passionate, they are people who, you know, they care, uh, they often have that intrinsic people person skills, which a lot of the time is just thinking, how can I actually build someone up? How can I increase their confidence? You know, and and, and that doesn't take a degree. I mean, let's not, I'm, I don't, what I don't want to say is you can't improve these things. You can't do these things better. But I think there are some things that are fundamental, which is, you know, your self-awareness, your desire for other people to do well, your ability to actually say, well done. <laughs> some people are not very good at that. And do you, do you, do you think we don't do that that well in, in, in PT, physio, rehab world? I, I think we've over-medicalized it sometimes and we forget that there's a, a an actual human attached who probably needs some motivation. Yeah, I think part of that comes from, and I'll be honest, I've, I've done this too. People that you see during the day sometimes just become your 1.30 appointment. They become your you know, 7am. Um, and 
that isn't inherently bad, but if that's how sort of it's framed, you might not be as inclined to take an extra minute or two to check in because you have another person coming 30 minutes later. Yeah. So that is part of where I I know I've, I've slipped a little there occasionally where it's just like you have a full day of people and, you know, whether you're feeling overwhelmed or or not, you know, there's plenty of times I've managed that very well. Um, but you may just, okay, let's start your warm up, Like how, you know, and we forget to literally just check in with them as a human. So again, that is not ill intent. That's, I'm trying to do my job. I want to get through as much as I can with this person because I know they really need to get stronger. All of it is, is definitely, um, you know, of, of good intent. I think that that's where, that's where sometimes it, it often gets overlooked or, yeah, it, well, it's, it, it's remembering that we're humans too. <laughs> you know, that the people doing the rehab, we have yeah. shitty days, we have bad nights sleep, we have arguments with our partners. And, you know, some days we are more upbeat than others. And I, I think that mostly what I've improved on, and I think it's really important that most of this podcast is about me. Um, <laughs> that's a joke, by the way, people who don't understand sarcasm. All of it is you. Yeah. So so I think what's helped me along the way is, and, and again, you know, I don't know how good I am at it, but just sometimes to check in with yourself, be a bit more, attempt to be more self-aware and just say, you know, I think this prob- person probably needs a bit more of this. And, you know, that, that understanding and that self-awareness to be able to say, that's what I'm going to kind of emphasise. So, like, you touched on the psychological side of things there, um, Steph. Now, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm big into this side of things. Um, and I think there is an assumption a little bit sometimes that if you get strong, psychological side of, its, side of it sorts itself out. Right. And in fact, there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago. That was pretty much their hypothesis. Hmm. If you get strong, if you have power, um, then everything else will sort itself out and you're going to be ready to play. (laughs) But we don't see that when we actually look at strength and power scores and things like uh, the return to sport index for ACLs. Can you just give me your, your thoughts in that area? Yeah, I think that it's a little bit of something where actually, I don't know if, I don't know if there would ever be a study that could capture this to be entirely honest. Maybe you could think of one, um, study design. I like it, (laughs) but I see a lot people who will pass whatever test you throw at them. You know, athletes are really good at making stuff look good and they can have a pretty unremarkable, um, fairly linear improved journey. Um, and by all marks on paper, be really good to start like the, the return to sports sort of ramp up like that, that end process. Um, I've had a good amount of people who display that and are not ready. (laughs) Um, they are great in clinic, which is another, probably a whole nother conversation as well too, because you, unless you have all the unlimited time, unlimited equipment, um, technology. And even then it isn't exact, but you can't recreate game type or match type race type, um, situations in the clinic. Uh, maybe 
the folks over at Isokinetic can do something pretty close because they've got like green rooms and virtual reality and all kinds okay. of stuff. Yeah. And that's probably closest. Yeah, and that's a really nice application of VR, actually, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's definitely um, things we can do well on the strength, power, agility side, um, but we can't we can't recreate. So there has to become a point where for most places you just need to start to gradually, you know, you should have a well laid out plan with your PT coach and or trainer at school of like a slow reintroduction. Um, for both confidence and just physical preparedness. But um, there is a subset, again, of this population that it's a traumatic experience for a lot of people. And at least you should have spent at least nine months, you know, in rehab, not really until maybe month six or seven, doing stuff like on field, on court, uh, you know, it's a long time to not be, in your element and then to suddenly be back in with maybe some lingering doubts and maybe some lingering fear is like really freaking scary for some people. And it's hard and it takes, I think sometimes a whole nother phase up to another like year for people to feel comfortable after returning. Mm. Um, Yeah. It's the start of another journey, isn't it? Almost getting back to playing is the start of a, is the start of, of another journey. So or, or interesting, again, the parallels with chronic pain are, are very similar. It's like a graded exposure, isn't it? Essentially, yes. Yeah, from both from both a physical perspective, which I suppose isn't the truest sense of graded exposure, but certainly from that fear perspective as well and that apprehension and fear of re-injury and these type of things. Yep. So do you think we discuss those things enough with people in the realm of ACL. We probably do in the realm of chronic pain. Um, do you think that's under-discussed with ACL injuries? Like directly to patients? Yeah, 100%, yeah. Uh, yes, totally. And I, I mean, even, like, again, like in, in clinics, sometimes I, I feel like I could do more. It is one of those things where also, when I know I have somebody there for 30 or 40 minutes, um, or maybe, maybe 60 minutes if I'm lucky, um, but that's where... I will end up doing that stuff. A lot of my athletes have my number and I will text them and I will. And again, that's where sometimes I feel like maybe I've overextended myself, but a lot of those types of conversations, um, you know, they, I try to do the best I can with setting expectations in the beginning, like at eval in the first couple sessions. So some of it's touched on there, but for anybody who studied, uh, learning in general too, they need reinforcement. You need, uh, you know, application, you need reminders. Um, and it gets harder and sort of pops back up for people. Some of that apprehension at different stages, you know, like they're probably cruising around month three or four, really heavy into strength stuff. Haven't, haven't done too much plyometrics or running or anything yet. And then we start that and it feels really weird to do like a single leg drop land or, you know, and they're like, why does this feel so weird? Why can't, you know, so it is 100% under discussed. And I also think, again, it's something that I do have to potentially pull a little bit of the experience card where after having a lot of those conversations and fucking a lot of them up, <laughs> but I had to get one in. I yeah, you did. You dropped an F bomb. Uh, fine. I met fine. my quota. Yeah. Okay. Good. 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 That, Zach would have cursed like thirty times already. Um, but it does kind of like you. You. You can't really be afraid to. 
to not do so great in some of those conversations. Um, and it is again, one of, one of the time constraint things. I don't want to, I know I sound like I'm blaming all of it on that, but it really is. That's, that's what I've learned is just that you, you oftentimes have to create more space for that outside of that 30 to 40 minute session. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I suppose uh, it brings up a question, doesn't it? it? When it comes to this kind of stuff, is it better to not talk about it and never mess it up, you know, or is it better to, you know, uh, you know, tackle these things full on knowing that we are never going to be able to go down this psychological road in perfection. So, yeah. you know, it's, again, it comes back to, uh, if we if we are afraid to flare patients up with pain, we will never load them up. And so at the same point, if we are afraid to ever go into the realms of, you know, thinking about people's emotions and their fears, et cetera, then we run the risk of not actually being able to address any of these things. Yeah. So, so I think we probably have to enter it saying we're not going to do it perfectly, but it's better to do it imperfectly than not do it at all. Yeah, you know, so our own expectations for ourselves, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that some, again, something that we should ask ourselves is, would we prefer someone to be totally unprepared and never mess it up? Or do we do we tackle this and, you know, do it in the best way that we know how, the best way that we can, probably imperfectly, but, you know, actually make yeah. sure that some of this stuff is covered. So look, we've talked a bit about the psychological side of things. I'm glad you see the importance uh, uh, as well as me. I'm not in in the minority, or um, well, out of us two anyway. Um, we, you know, obviously a lot more has been made over the last five or six years about strength and quad strength and meeting these kind of objective markers. And I don't want to go down that road too much because I, I think that's probably fairly common knowledge. Out. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot out there, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's the new thing, isn't it? Quad <laughs> index, quad strength. And I'm sure it's really, really important. Yeah. Um, just I'm sure there's other things to touch on as well. So what else is out there? Because, I uh, you know, when I went, to, went teaching in Israel a few years ago, I, I met a woman out there called Nirit who does a lot of kind of game movement playing and, you know, the movement re-education-y type of stuff out there yeah. in regards to ACL, um, you know, and chaotic kind of rehab, not just, you know, very structured. Mm -hmm. So not just that, but what else do you think is, is relevant to you when it comes to ACLs? Yes. So I, we talked a little bit about this. I've been going down a little bit of a, I don't think it's a rabbit hole. I'm just exploring. Um, <laughs> it's all right. No, you use fair. <laughs> but I've always had this thought that if, cause I also am interested in just general, like youth athletic development and why there is some divergence in ACL injuries around like adolescence, like between don't quote me on the years, I think like between nine and 13. <laughs> but um, it could be 14, couldn't it? It could be. <laughs> and then I would be really, I'd oh, be, be terrible. Um, but I always thought, again, hadn't really seen a study on it or whatever, but my bias was that, you know, around that age, the male gender or sex is usually based on their sports encouraged to, or their team-based sports are encouraged to start to lift, to go to the weight room. Um, females are not, in wow. fact, it's not really a place that culturally we are 
welcome. That's not our space. You know, some might be confident to go in, you know, yeah. but there's also, um, Eric Mira talks about this too. And I don't know the exact couple of studies, but like studies that show that women basically will take up less space, um, verbally, mentally, physically, they won't make noises when they lift, they don't slam anything down. They get in and out really quickly. Um, I think that was more at the collegiate level, but anyway, all this to say is I've been trying to explore a little bit more of maybe what, how we see sex, gender, and gender roles, at least in our country, how that might actually influence potentially the increased risk for females or those who are uh, assigned female or seen female uh, in, in our country, how that might implicate potentially their risk. Right. Because right. Um, we talk so much about, and there is a lot of good information about things like um, just generally decreased strength as you know related to body weight, um, biomechanical changes in jump land and or yeah. what's called like neuromuscular issues for females, yeah. um, hormone influence, hip width, uh, uh, the old Q angle and yeah, it's yeah. It, and there's so much out there. And again, like I'm definitely a proponent of things being very multifactorial and there might be some anatomical differences that may predispose. But when you think about naming those as like maybe primary risk factors, they can't, a female can't change that. So where else can there potentially be something that might even the playing field, if you will, um, aside from all these things that have been studied, because I think it it potentially impacts how females are actually see themselves and their own risk. And and I don't know. For me, I feel like being told that my most of my risk factors are the fact that a I'm female. B, I might not have as much strength per body weight. C, maybe my hips are wider than you know then my knees considerably to a certain angle and also how I jump and land probably isn't great. And I can work on that. I don't know. It just seems almost like a little bit, there always seems to be that there has to be something more. I, I apparently that's a theme in my, in my musings is there's gotta be something else. <laughs> there's always, and to be fair, there is always something else. There, yeah, there, that's that's, what I figure, right? <laughs> you get to the end of the rabbit hole and guess what there is. A rabbit yeah. hole. Um, so, no, but I, you know, you bring up you bring up a really great point, and I think that we are, you, you know, one of the big criticisms I think of things like the biopsychosocial model, and you know, obviously I talk about this quite a lot, is that we probably don't give equal weight to all of the areas. You know, we've definitely talked about biology for a long time. Um, you know, psychology is having more of its day in the sun. And now we're starting to get this creeping aspect of how does society influence our health, our, um, you know, uh, you know, social determinants of health, for an example. How do our beliefs and our culture and our socioeconomics, how do they influence um, what we do? And that's exactly what you're talking about to some degree, yeah. isn't it? That, you know, socially, that, that is, a, is, a, is a limitation because of the roles that we take. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, and... I'm glad you brought up social determinants of health too, because that's actually something that um, I'm reading a few articles right now and I'm, I'm writing a blog for ACL study day on this topic. And Joanne Parsons did um, 
a study with two other women, I forget their names, but they do reference social determinants of health and how um, the, the issue is more, is likely more in that realm than something like, oh, we just need to treat males and females similarly. Like it's a, it's a whole, it's something where like, for example, bring this back to kids again, sorry. But like when you find out that you're having a boy or a girl, people, what do people do? They buy you all pink clothes or they buy you like dolls or whatever. And if it's a boy, he gets like a soccer ball or, you know, um, sneakers or something like that. So you, you literally like gender is a construct and you literally become influenced gender wise from before you are born. Yeah, I, I, gender is one of the strong, you know, the uproar that we see when people talk about, you know, being non-binary and, and these type of things. Yeah. Um, and it is just something that's deeply ingrained, you know, within our culture. And there's so many things that are deeply ingrained within our cultures. Yeah. And, and what's really fantastic, I think, and over the last few years, and I think this has accelerated and exploded even within the last couple of years, is that the first step is starting to happen, that we are starting to be more aware of it. We're having more conversations. Now, I don't think we have answers yet because we're not that far along, but the first thing is awareness, right? Yeah, I I agree. And um, her, I have it here, obviously, because I'm in the middle of trying to write this blog. Um, (laughs) But but right now. It really stuck with me and I have, it's so, this is weird because it was open to the part that she talks about social determinants of health, but um, I'm just going to read this short piece because I think it actually makes more sense with what I'm trying to, I'm I'm not articulating it as well as she does, (laughs) but She said, through Marmot's work on social determinants of health, we now know that understanding and acting on upstream social and contextual factors is vital in improving individual and population health. In the same way that these contemporary understandings have shown that it is racism, not race, that influences health and injury outcomes, we argue here that it is sexism. Um, not simply sex that plays a role in ACL injury outcomes. Yeah, so it's a cultural behavior, you know, rather than just the fact that you are born of a certain gender or a certain race. And, you know, that's... uh, that's a very profound statement and, and, you know, (laughs) yes, that, that, there you go. And, and I think it's humbling for us all just to think about these things in, in, in different ways and different perspectives. Yeah. I think this sort of dive for me has been more of a, like, or less of a, Oh, I think this is the whole answer. And more of just like, I think this is another just potential thing that over the course of studying this injury so much that maybe we've just overlooked a little bit. Um, obviously I don't think, I think this is just another piece, um, yeah. have more influence than we think. I think one of the problems we have is it's a piece of the puzzle, but the puzzle is, let's say it's a piece of the pie, but the pie is so big in terms <laughs> of society culture. It, now we are starting to play a different ball game and your average, you know, rehab, uh, PT working with people with their ACL, most of these things are going to be, you know, with they are not going to be things that can be modified quickly, certainly even. Uh, and I think that can be frustrating. And I think it can be like, well, what the fuck am I meant to do here? <laughs> um, but I do think this awareness 
is where we need to start. And maybe, you know, I think I put this into context with home exercise, for example. If I've got, a, you know, a busy mum of three, single mum, works two jobs, am I going to give her nine years of strength training <laughs> five hours of time, yeah. you know, to go away and do? And so I think that there needs to be an element of awareness yeah. and how do we work with it rather than the frustrating idea of how do we change it? Because I think yeah. that that can be too big. Yeah, it's not a, um, it's not a, oh, I, I think we have to fix this. Yeah. I think we need to just be aware, understand how it works and work with it potentially to have better impacts for both sexes. Yeah, because I think that's what turns people off this subject is that it's, right. well, what, what the hell do I do now? And, and I don't think you have to do anything. Right. I, I think you just have to understand at this stage, you know, maybe in 30, 40 years time, policy will change, community yeah. will change, you know, our environment around us might change as our understandings improve. But, you know, what what a lovely insight for us to finish with, Steph, that, that you bring there. And, and you know, that, that's a real valuable thing, I think, for anyone listening. There is, I know that there's at least two people who listen to this, by the way. <laughs> And that's my you know, my wife and uh, my son because um, they have to. I make them. Um, but but what's really really valuable here is you know thinking about these different things that that we can start to consider and understand. And sometimes they can be a bit daunting and uh, and I feel a bit uncomfortable actually because they're outside of of the realm of what we what we do sometimes. So look, I would like to thank you uh, for spending. Um, some time with me talking i think you've made some really nice and eloquent points um and i wish you luck with uh your uh, acl resolve project because i think that's going to be very valuable for anyone involved so if, if i let's say tomorrow god forbid i hurt my acl and i need some help how am i how am i gonna i better not now i'm gonna blame you and i want free help how how would I go about finding you, Steph? Yes. Well, also the um, gratitude is mutual. Thank you for having me. Um, <laughs> oh, there we go. We're loving, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> and I was allowed to curse once, so it's great. There you go. Um, I am mostly um, on and most comfortable with uh, Instagram, so I'm just stephallen.dpt. I don't have a specific website yet for okay. for ACL Resolve. Um, but there is the, the link in my bio will um, allow you to sign up for a mailing list. And there's a couple of, of uh, things that I will send you just exercise wise, just sort of informational. Um, and you can feel free to set up a short call with me there too, just to sort of discover and learn, learn more if you're, if you're looking into it. Um, but I am pretty open book accessible on, on Instagram. If you wanted to shoot me an email directly, it's just, um, Steph at the level up initiative.com. I use that, that email for business stuff. Perfect. Good. Well, look, thank you again. And, um, hopefully I never need your services, but I will definitely, <laughs> uh, use them. I'm too old to be involved in sport anymore. Oh, no one's, no one's too old. Oh, no, no. When I say that, I mean, any, you know, it's all pretty. I had a game of tennis yesterday with my friend and it was all pretty old man stuff. We just gently <laughs> hit the ball backwards and forwards. Hey, but you're doing it. Yeah, exactly. That's the way that I like to feel. All right, Steph, uh, thank you so much for coming on and I will thank talk you. to you very soon. You have been listening to the Core Kinetic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>